Right, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time that you've granted us to come and hear the testimony of Christ in our salvation from the book of Romans. We pray for all we have gathered, those who are listening from afar. May you speak to them in a way that you alone are able to speak. May you grant me strength and faithfulness to your word. Lord, we honor you for all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning to everybody again. You can see I'm red. I like the shirt. It's red. Bakai. Bakais have happened to us because of Tanaka, right? <laughs> Romans 6 this morning. Romans 6 from 10 to 17. Just starting from 10 to build context. Romans 6, 10 to 17. The apostle by the Holy Spirit recorded for us and said, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its last. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And that's the word of the Lord. May he help us with understanding. For titles we have two. Sin lost dominion because of grace. Sin lost dominion because of grace. Number two title is similar to the first title that we had in Romans 6 and is and it is shall we sin more because of grace shall we sin more because of grace those titles are necessary for the development of our message I'm going to say Romans 6 is a very difficult chapter and mostly because of the traditions of men that have not worked all the other details that God has given in the development of the arguments for Christ, for salvation. A lot of preachers who are not real gospel preachers love to go to Romans 6. 
because it gives them some stick, some beating stick to beat up people for their sin. And then they, in so doing, ignore the bigger picture of the gospel testimony. Okay. Paul says, Shall we sin the more that grace may increase? And he answers his question and says, May it never be, God forbid. But there's more to that than just an exhortation or command. And we'll unpack it. The redeemed have a relationship that has been established for them or for them in and by Christ. That is a very purposeful statement. In and by Christ. Not in and by Paul Martin. It's not in the text. They are now and where, see, are present continuous and where past tense. The redeemed are and were united to him. In his death, his baptism on the cross, that's what Jesus called his own suffering on the cross, the baptism. And God's gracious election is what put the redeemed in Christ. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So election is fundamental to how one find or found themselves in Christ. And apart from election, there is no way to be in Christ and to benefit from anything that is in Christ. Election is what created the legal basis of the believer's union with him. Election is what created the legal basis for you and I to have any claim of anything that is in Christ. So a denial of election is a denial of the gospel because God's grace is tied to his election of who should be saved. And those who say election is not part of the gospel are not telling the truth. They do not understand the gospel. They are in denial of God's revealed truth. Katie would not have any legal title before the law if she was not married to Sean. She could get a free drink. That's probably the most. Maybe movie ticket. But she could not have any legal title. 
there has to be something that gives a legal title to whatever Sean possesses. So even as things stand now, she has more legal title to what Sean has than Sean's mom, by law. Okay? And all these things are preaching the gospel. That's why they're there. They're not coming from men and women. It's God's way of doing things. And so being united to Christ, the transaction was such that as Christ died, the elect also died and as he resurrected, they also were resurrected with him and in him. And that means God has done to all the elect what happened to Christ. But in a representative way. What happened to Christ has already happened to you and I. So the redeemed were already punished for all their sins because God united them in the suffering of Christ. But Christ Jesus taking all the burden of the payment. He did the payment. And this is a serious gospel truth that should not and cannot be compromised and still live one in the truth of Christ. If we miss union and representation, I'm a union and representation imputation preacher, but we see it proclaimed everywhere in the Bible. If we miss union and representation with and by Christ, there is no gospel to talk about. Your faith and mine are in vain because it will all come down to work salvation. You working, you deciding, you running, willing, crying, praying at three in the morning, tithing your way out of hell. Yeah, this thing about praying at three in the morning, I I don't know what kind of God they are dealing with. It looks like they are praying to someone in the White House. The 3 a.m. whatever call. There's no 3 a.m. for God. (laughs) God is never too busy. At no point of his existence, he's never too busy that you have to try and get him at three in the morning. Okay? That's just foolishness. So, there's no atonement. There's no redemption. There's no justification with that, without that union because sin could not have been imputed to Christ without union. So the union had to be there for your sin to be imputed to him. Okay? And that union was established by election. And that is why when Jesus came, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Not for the sheep to become sheep. But they were already sheep. They were already in union with him. 
The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But the good shepherd does not do those things. He does not abandon the sheep to the wolves, mostly sin, death, and condemnation. That's the idea here. He's not talking about just regular people. The real enemies to your soul are sin, death, and condemnation. And he alone is faithful enough to face them, and he did, and to condemn them to death by his own death. So he gives, or he gave himself over to death in the place of the ship, that the ship may live. He comes and says, to whatever was coming to destroy you. Leave them alone. You come and settle it with me. If you're looking for death, that satisfies you. You can't get it from the ship. It has to be from me. So I give my life for the sake of the ship that they may live. The ship were always, as I said, is before he came into the world. They just had issues of sin that had happened to them because of Adam and they needed some cleansing before they could be presented to the Father. Because the sheep are supposed to be presented to the Father by the Son. But they need some cleansing. They had some dirty diapers. <laughs> So the sheep were given him by the father and he came to secure their life and their standing before the father through his death. The Lord Jesus was sinless and thus naturally he was not under sin. He was not under death and condemnation naturally. So the only way that he could come under the power of sin was through the imputation of our guilt. And again, there's no imputation without union. And where there was full payment of this imputed sin or guilt, there must also be the imputation of righteousness. Because your account has been cleared. The debt has been settled as an acknowledgement of the complete settling of what was owed to God. And that is why I do not agree with those who say Jesus died, but he did not justify anyone until that person comes to the realization of who Christ is. Your realization of Christ does not cause anything. Not in the courtroom of God. As I have said before, getting a new pair of glasses does not cause trees and flowers and grass to appear from nowhere. It doesn't cause them to grow. 
It causes you to see better what was already there. In other words, your glasses do not bring or cause new realities. They cause you to see what is and was and what was already there. Thus, by extension, faith is the God-given glasses to see, to comprehend existing spiritual realities in Christ. Faith does not and cannot pay for anything of itself. It is a revelation of God of Christ and his salvation. It reveals a person and a work and what God means by that person and by that work that was done. Remember Jesus saying, what do men or who do men say that I am? And you know the conversation with the disciples, with Peter speaking on behalf of the disciples. But then Jesus brought it to, but who do you say that I am? So, it becomes very important what we say about Jesus and what he did. So the work that was done was already completed and you and I are being brought to the knowledge of our justification, a justification that already happened in that particular work. Christ came to justify his people, to save them from their sins, to redeem them. These all are saying the same things. It's just a different way of saying the same thing. Thus to say the redeemed are still under condemnation even after the payment was made does not add up to me because it is saying we were not united with Christ until we believed or until we were water baptized. And yet the text said, we were baptized with him into his death. And as I say, if our condemnation is removed at our faith, we have to be rational in our arguments of the gospel because that's the problem that I have with a lot of these popular preachers. It doesn't matter to me whether they are reformed or sovereign grace or minions. The way that they preach Christ is mostly irrational. They double talk. It's very, very confusing. I'm serious. You listen to what even John MacArthur, he has a PhD and whatever, he knows Greek, Hebrew, Latin, doesn't matter. But he makes some very irrational gospel statements. Doesn't make sense. And he's not the only one. If our condemnation is removed at our faith, then it means Christ must be condemned for your sin. Every time 
a person is brought to faith. And that completely nullifies the cross. And I have a question. Where do you put the condemnation that I had 10 years ago? Who took it away from me? When do you put it on the cross to be removed? Was it 10 years ago? Do you put it in some storage place here in Columbus? In some Amazon warehouse? (laughs) Do we get God to go back and start beating up the Lord Jesus again and again until the fullness of the elect have been brought to salvation. We have to think logically about the theological implications of our positions. And if they don't add up, we need to repent. But Paul tells us that the old man of sin was crucified with Christ. The old man has to be the one who brought all things sinful and the consequences of them to us as they represented us. And I contend that the old man was and is Adam because that is what is appropriate to the larger context of the conversation in Romans 6 and 5. The old man was crucified. He was made powerless. Because that which has been crucified has been disabled. Their hands have been tied and life taken out of them. But what does that mean? Does it mean that the redeemed do not sin anymore? Because if that's what that means then we are in serious trouble because we are still sinning. Even the best of us is still sinning. What does it mean that the old man was crucified? It is saying the power of sin to condemn those in Christ was cancelled. Cancelled by how much? To what extent? To the tune of death. Mad nothing. Sin was not left limping with a few things that could possibly condemn you. So condemnation does not exist for the redeemed. It cannot exist. It doesn't matter how much they sin. And this is an offense. It cannot exist even though they may sin as long as they are in Christ. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And there's no sin that is greater than Christ. Because Christ Jesus is God. Sin as the slave master lost dominion and control of all whom it had enslaved. 
who are in Christ. His dominion was only temporal for those in Christ. The elect were not to remain under the power of sin that was never God's design. They were passing through to experience sin and its consequences so that the grace and mercy of God may be magnified to them in their salvation. You and I were only to come to God by his grace alone and his mercy alone. And you can't have grace and mercy apart from sin. So sin was unavoidable as the cross of Christ was unavoidable as the glory of Christ was unavoidable. So in the crucifixion of sin was its death and also the freedom of those who were enslaved to its power of condemnation. And people are too quick to run to the freedom of the redeemed from sinning before they have understood the larger theological points that are being made in the text. They want to say, oh, you cannot be sinning anymore, or you should be seeing yourself getting better and better and better, but sin is getting weak and weak. The text does not say sin will be made weak. It says sin was killed. <laughs> it was destroyed. It's not a process of weakening. Jesus did not engage himself in a process of weakening and removing sin by one offering of himself he perfected forever the sanctified. There's no process there. So the sin that you are now doing does not and cannot bring condemnation to you before God. It cannot. Because Christ canceled it. He removed it from the throne. That's what Paul is saying to the people who are aware of these kind of things. He says, sin as a master was removed from the throne. It was destroyed. It has no more power. So you who were once slaves to it are no more slaves to it. There's nothing that it can do to you. And Paul says, and he who has died has been freed from sin. He who has died has been freed from the power of sin. They've been freed from all that they owed. And this is not saying that all who have died in natural death have been freed and justified. No, it is those who died with Christ who alone have experienced the death by which they are reckoned to have been freed from sin, been freed from that which controlled them as to condemn them. This is more than just doing sin. That is not Paul's major concern. His major concern is the condemnation that comes out of the sin. So just dying in the natural way of dying does not 
remove the condemnation of sin. Otherwise, there would not be a need for Christ. All you needed to get away from your sin is just to die. And then you'll be in glory. (laughs) But that's not God's way. The natural death only separates one from the life and the deaths of this world, the issues of this world, the mortgages of this world, the credit cards of this world. But sin debt is carried over with them. But all we have died with and in Christ have been justified from all their sin. When they leave this place, they live with no debt, not here and not where they're going. And all the elect are regarded by God as having already died with Christ, as having already paid what they owed in and by Christ. That's what dying is talking about. That is how God sees things. That is how God sees you. That is the relationship they sustain to sin and to God. You have two relationships here that you have to be aware of. You have a relationship that you sustained to sin because of being born in Adam. And that relationship, you have been divorced from it. You have been severed from it. And now you relate to God in a different way. You relate to God in the righteousness of Christ. Not as a sinner, but in the righteousness of the righteous one. So to sin, you died. And to God, you are alive. God does not see you as dead anymore. God has already moved them out, the redeemed, translated them out of the domain wherein sin had jurisdiction to condemn. In Christ, sin has no jurisdiction. It has no right or power to condemn Sister Kelly. It cannot. It has no right to come and bring any of her sins and say, oh, Kelly, do you remember this sin and that other sin? And this point is not understood by many of those who want to bring you under the law. Because once you put anyone under the law, you also have brought them under the jurisdiction where sin has power to condemn. But sin has power to condemn only when you are under the law. That's where it has jurisdiction. And that's where the law has jurisdiction to condemn also. So they work together. That's why Paul said, the power of sin is in the law. They work together. They share the jurisdiction to condemn. But in Christ, sin has no power. And the law has no power to condemn. 
So the law is the domain where sin thrives. Where sin kills and condemns. And that is the domain, that is the zip code, that's the address of the old man, of Adam, of the law, of the flesh, of the devil, of Hagar, of Ishmael. These all are in the same WhatsApp group. Okay. But Paul says, since Christ died once for all time and never to die again, the believer is supposed to know they're supposed to know this truth and understand the implication of it in their standing before God and their present life. He is saying, you cannot walk aright until you've understood how you relate to God. That is why he labors so hard to teach you the matter of salvation and righteousness by God's grace alone because that affects how you walk. Because you talk to a lot of professing Christians and they walk as always burdened by guilt that they do not know how to remove. They've tried and continue to try to no avail. Why? Because they have not understood God's arguments about how a sinner should relate to God. They are trying to relate to God by their own walk, by their own faithfulness, by their own clear conscience. I'm not thinking this sin. I'm not doing this sin anymore. But that's not how you relate to God. You relate to God through the other person called Jesus. But Paul says, since Christ died once for all time and never to die again, the believer is supposed to know this truth. Yeah? They're supposed to understand what the death of Christ means and what it accomplished. Christ Jesus will not die again. But why? Because he made complete satisfaction for all the sins of his people. His people have and since Christ cannot die again, those who are in him cannot be tried again for their sins. You have to understand that point. <laughs> Christ shall not die again. And that means you and I shall not ever be tried again for the very sins that caused the death of Christ. And if any of his elect owes any unpaid sin or debt to God, even here and now, then it means it is not the elect person who owes the debt. It is Christ Jesus who did not finish the work that he came to do. He wrote a check that had 
an insufficient amount of merit for your salvation. Because he came as surety of the debt of all the elect and to make it good. That's what he came to do. So Christ is he who legally took the responsibility of the debt. And he must be brought back to court and be charged for making an incomplete payment. Otherwise, he has to go to jail. (laughs) If that is the case, then Christ must be crucified again to finish the rest. There's no other way. Not in God's court. This is how it has to be done. If Jesus did not already justify you, and God already pleased with you, then Christ must come back and be crucified again to make it good. Okay? You can't skip this if there's ever going to be salvation. But the Holy Spirit says he died once for all time and that tells us that he died and he paid for every jot and tittle of our sins, the sins of the elect, and that is why God raised him from the dead. There is no way to read the Bible faithfully and deny this truth. Deny sovereign grace election. Deny the truth of Christ's full payment of Christ's redemption and reconciliation of his people. And because he did that, God raised him from the dead. And he seated him on the right hand of majesty. And Hebrews 1 verse 4 would say, because he made an end to the purification of sin. He justified. As the high priest, he completely cleansed all his people. That's why he is seated. And those in him should follow the movement of the arguments as God is presenting them and submit to that understanding. That's what is going to give you the freedom that you need in Christ. And Paul understood this and said, Galatians 2, 20-21. Paul was speaking to those who wanted to bring him back under the law. This was his response to the law mongers. (laughs) Understand the context. He was writing in response to those who wanted to bring the redeemed back under the law of Moses. And he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. So my relationship to the law was cancelled in my crucifixion with Christ. My life has been absorbed into that of Christ through union and death of the cross. But Christ lives in me 
through union and the resurrection. And the Christ who lives in you is not under the law. He already gave the law everything that it required. And if you are putting the redeemed under the law, you are essentially putting Christ back under the law. <laughs> and the life which I now live, so this is the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by Moses, by the moral law, by the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments are eternal. Is that what he says? No. This is a guy who was raised under the law. He was baptized in the law. He says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's his gospel. Christ gave himself for me because he loved me before he gave himself for me. And I live not by trying to keep the law. My new rule of life is faith. Faith is the rule of life for the redeemed. Don't listen to those who say the law is the way of life. And then because they're very educated, they come up with very high sounding arguments. But that are contrary to the testimony of the scriptures. The faith in the Son of God. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And the Westminster Confession of Faith says, it is the law that is the rule of life for the redeemed. I disagree. Because Paul wholeheartedly disagrees with them. Because of what he has just said and what he will say in the next verse. To have the law as the rule of life for the redeemed means to live the life before the Christ was crucified. The law was the rule of life for Paul before Christ was crucified. But there's been an exchange. There's been a change. The law is for the unredeemed and condemned. The redeemed live by faith in the Son of God. So Paul says, crucifixion must happen to separate you from sin, law, death, and condemnation. The life that I now live, I live by faith because of this thing called crucifixion that happened. So the crucifixion of Christ becomes very, very important because it answers to a lot of things that respect to your understanding before God. To respect your standing before God. Verse 21, Galatians 2 still. I do not set aside the law of God. For if righteousness comes through grace alone, then Christ died in vain. That's how it would sound by the preaching and teaching of many people. 
they do not want to set aside the law. But Paul says the exact opposite. He says, if, sorry, I do not set aside the grace of God. I don't care what you're going to tell me about the moral commandments, about the Ten Commandments. I do not care. I will not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness, if salvation, if holiness, if my standing before God comes through the law in any way, then Christ died in vain. Christ died in vain. So the issue here is not your obedience to the law. The issue here is the dignity and honor of the Christ who died. That is a much bigger transaction. I do not set aside the grace of God just to be in agreement with your confessions. So there's no righteousness that comes to you or me by your own obedience to the law. Paul said your righteousness must be and only in Christ and his death. So claiming that a believer is under the law as the rule of life is to say Jesus died in vain. That's what Paul is saying. Because what will the believer be under the law for? What are you going to be under the law for? What are you trying to achieve? To do what? Is it for righteousness? And is it not for righteousness that people want to go under the law? Is it not for sanctification? But is sanctification not righteousness? It is. Sanctification has two elements to it. Fundamentally, it means to be separate or be separated. But it also has a sense of being set apart not just in election and redemption, but from sin. And the law cannot separate you from sin. The law cannot wash you from sin. So you cannot use the law to try and become more righteous or become righteous. It is a magnet for sin. The law is the magnet for sin. Paul is going to argue that in Romans 7. And Paul says, sanctification cannot happen by law either. And he says this to the Galatians who were seeking to perfect the flesh by the law. And he says that's a denial of the gospel. It's not just some other harmless thing to say. It's a denial of the gospel. It's another gospel that is taunting the truth of God. You cannot be sanctified by that which did not justify you. You cannot be sanctified by that which did not justify you. So if Christ justified you, it is he alone who sanctifies you. If grace justified you, it is grace alone that sanctifies you. That's how it works. So all matters of Christ are processed 
they are transacted to his people through faith. So as Christ died, resurrected and lives to God, the redeemed are also to reckon themselves as having died and resurrected to God and should now live Godward, contemplating the things of above more and more and not the things of the earth which is perishing. There's nothing for you here. You have zero investment in this place called the world. The redeemed have died to sin. They have escaped the realm where sin would condemn them. And that realm that they cannot be condemned in is being in Christ. The city of refuge. Where the avenger of blood cannot enter and condemn them to death because of their sin. Remember, Christ is the city of refuge. And the city of refuge had city limits, boundaries, outside of which the avenger of blood, representing the law, had jurisdiction to kill the sinner should they leave the city of refuge. And to be safe, one had to remain in the confines of the city, in the confines of the city of refuge, the New Testament, Christ. That's where you are safe. That's the only place you are safe. You have to remain in Christ, abide, remain in Christ. That's what Jesus said. So sin cannot trespass and the law cannot trespass and breach the city limits that are Christ Jesus as to have you condemned. As we say, trespassers will be prosecuted. (laughs) Keep your feet away from here. Trespassers will be prosecuted. The avenger of blood has no jurisdiction to condemn one who has escaped to the city of refuge. They have no power, they have no jurisdiction. But once you get out of that, God says, get him. <laughs> because you should have remained within the city limits. Okay? So Romans 6.11 will say, likewise, you also Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reckon yourselves, regard yourselves to be indeed dead to sin. In other words, stop having nightmares about sin. Stop having nightmares about the avenger of blood chasing after you. 
because he has no more power over you, no matter how angry he may be. Regard yourself as having already escaped into the city of refuge and have become a citizen there. Understand what God is, what, what God has said about those who sought refuge in the city of refuge. That's number 34. He said they could not be condemned. Even if they were to come out, if they came out of the city on one condition and one condition only, and the death of the high priest anointed with the holy oil. If the high priest died, then they were free from all condemnation. It's in the text. They cannot be prosecuted. They cannot be condemned. And that is the hardest thing to drive into people's heads. You have to understand the arguments. Understand God's arguments. That's how you're going to be free. That's how you're going to have a clean conscience because as long as you're in this flesh, you're going to always find yourself stumbling in one way or the other. And yet, if by God's grace, people would understand what God is saying, we would rejoice and stop the pity party and say, this indeed is the best news that I've ever had. Someone give me a ladder. I want to get on top of the house and shout it from the rooftop. <laughs> Regard yourselves based on what God says about Christ as those who have indeed died to sin. So this is an intellectual argument, a rational argument, a spiritual argument, a theological argument being made by Paul. And he says by the Holy Spirit, it must be understood if we should be able to progress in the discussion of sin and righteousness and the understanding of the freedom by which or into which Christ has made us free. This is going to be the power to your freedom from the condemnation of sin and to be the motivation to flee from sin. But Paul does not say, flee from sin so that you may keep or honor the law. He does not say that. He says, flee because of what God has made you and declared you to be in Christ. This is who you are. You are not doing anything to becoming anything. You are already something. Your relationship to Christ is and should be your motivation, your driver, not the law. Verse 12 of Romans 6. Yeah, it took us a lot of work. <laughs> Romans 12. Therefore, do not let, sorry, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its last. You cannot start your message from there. You have to labor everything that we have talked about because the therefore assumes everything that we have said. 
Therefore, as a result of the discussion of the old man being crucified, of the body of sin being made palace, of you being crucified and raised and seated with Christ, of being justified from all manner of sin, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, in your flesh, to obey its lust. So sin has lusts that work through the mortal fleshly body. That's what the fleshly body does. And Paul is saying, we should strive to resist the edges of sin as to allow it to reign, as to give it back is throne. See the word that he uses. He did not say so for you not to sin, but to give it so much power that it begins to reign again as before, as if Christ was never revealed. And the motivation to resist is to be found in God's grace and our already established standing before God. In other words, we are now to look at sin not as those who have been defeated by it, but as those who are on the other side of town, the victory side of town. Sin does not have its arsenal that it used to wield against us before God to condemn us. It doesn't have that power anymore. It is a big gun with no guns, I mean with no bullets. Firing empty shells. It's a toothless bulldog. In that it cannot take you out of your standing before God, no matter how much it bucks. Though the slobber from it may itch in this life. <laughs> okay, getting seen, get some itching. But that itching is not unto death. Okay. And what is the other way to say the same exhortation, verse 12? The same exhortation of verse 12. And that's verse 18. And do not present your members as instruments. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. And that is a negative imperative. Do not. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That's positive. Do not do this, but instead do this. The mortal flesh has members. And the different members of the body imply Sin can and does express itself in many ways depending on the member that it is riding to do its bidding. And that means there are many sinners who appear to be righteous than they actually are because of what members are expressing their sin. So the person making the headlines in the news is not necessarily the greatest sinner in the city. It's just that 
the one thing that they did, they exposed sin through one of their members. <laughs> the more public member of their body. The thief on the cross was not the greatest sinner in Israel, even though he spent all his life stealing. Neither was Barabbas. Not Solomon with his 1,000 wives and concubines. Because some people say, oh, Solomon was not saved because he had 1,000 wives. I'm like, so the 1,000 wives were greater than the power of Christ? There's some powerful women then. <laughs> That's the powerful women movement that is greater than Christ Jesus and his cross. If you go and read the text, should be Second Kings, maybe. God says he loves Solomon. It's there in the text. He loves Solomon. So Solomon was God's man. God wrote scripture for us through Solomon. Yeah. He was preaching something through Solomon. It was not about his wife. The Pharisee in Luke 18 was a great sinner. His sin was hidden in some of his members. Outwardly, he seemed to be righteous. He trusted in his own righteousness. His sin was so hidden in some of his members that he thought he was righteous. He trusted in his own righteousness and despised others. But he was ignorant of the one thing of God's righteousness in Christ. He wrongly approached God and God himself a sound condemnation from Jesus. He approached God on his doing of the imperatives. I thank you, I'm not like other men I do this, I do that, I do this, I stop doing this, I'm not doing this, I'm... You see, you cannot bring your doing of the imperatives to God for righteousness. God will not accept that testimony, no matter how it may sound to other people. So present yourselves then as those who are aware of their being alive to God, as those who are aware that they are not condemned as those who have been reconciled and have peace with God, present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. Instruments of righteousness as in the testimony of Christ Jesus. Who is your righteousness? And in the matter of your view towards sin, you are not to view sin as those who are in Romans 1 country or as you viewed it in the days of your ignorance of the truth of Christ have a different view to sin as you are in Christ. We have more commentary, useful gospel commentary. Let's keep going. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. 
sin shall not have dominion over you. Why and how? Paul says for, in other words, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And many things have been said in that verse. He says the motivation to not continue in sin is that sin shall not have dominion as to rule over you, as to do its bidding and then condemning you. But the one who rules you is the one who pays you. And what does sin pay you with? The wages of sin is what? Is death. That's what sin gives you as the ruler. To sin now, you have become like a rebel child. Become difficult to control. Because you have some other energy. You have some other mind. Some other knowledge. Some other understanding. Some other high motivation. That convicts and restrains you from going back wild. But there's more reason to that. Paul says, sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. You would think, Paul would say, sin shall not have dominion over you because you are under the law and you now have power to do the law. He should have said that. No. He says the very opposite. Since dominion has been removed by reason of grace, not of law. The implication is that the law naturally puts sin back on the throne and has no power to help a sinner. The law has no power to help a sinner in any way. And that cannot be denied by anyone who is reading this correctly. Law and grace do not achieve the same ends. The law gives sin power. It does not reign in sin. Grace is what gives power over sin. Because grace means God at work. That's what grace means. Grace is not just some grace open-ended something. Grace means God doing it. (laughs) That's what grace means. So the believer is said to be one who is not under the law, but one who is under grace. That's clear to you. And that implies, again, that the redeemed are not under the law for their rule of life. Because that would militate against Paul's argument of salvation and even in the dealing of sin. Dealing with sin. The law given its standard of perfection will continue to make you feel condemned and you lose motivation to rein in any members of the flesh due to despair. Keep seeing yourself doing the one and same thing, even when you're trying to stop it and it seems like you're not getting anywhere. 
if you continue under law, then that's just more condemnation. But when you know that this very sin cannot condemn you, your mindset changes. It changes the whole dynamic of how you relate to it. And you actually have a better chance of getting freedom from it that way. So the law produces an evil conscience because of dead works. That's going to be Hebrews teaching. The law produces an evil conscience because of dead works. It gets you doing things that don't really help you before God. So that's what dead works are. Verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but grace? Certainly not. Paul realizes again the potential problem with the message of God's free and sovereign grace. If people were under the law, he would not have considered or bothered making this statement. If the redeemed are under the law, Paul would not have said that. It implies that the redeemed are not under the law. Shall we sin because we are not under the law? So he asked the same question that he had asked at the opening of the chapter in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, where he says, Shall we say, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? So that has to be the natural response. And unless someone comes to that conclusion, whoever is speaking is not telling the truth of God. Grace has to be proclaimed in such a way that you feel like you can just go and do everything that you want. If you have not been taken to that stage, then you haven't heard the message. <laughs> Grace should be such that you feel like you can just go and do whatever you want and still be fine. And guess what? You'll still be fine. <laughs> I didn't put it in this message, but Paul hints at it in one of the Corinthian letters. Where he said, I don't even judge myself. I don't even know a single thing against me. <laughs> I don't even judge myself. It's a waste of time. I don't know anything that is against me. Not with this message, what could be against me? If God is for me, who can be against me? Not fallen angels. Not principalities, powers. Not the visible, invisible. Not death, no life, no... Depth or height, there's nothing that can be against us to separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's how revolutionary this message is. Okay? But that's the objection that you want to hear from people when you tell them of God's free grace. Yeah? They say, oh, that's too much grace. That's too much grace. People will do whatever they want. That position of justifying a sinner freely without some proper behavior modification according to their own standards is not going to work. You can't just leave people to do whatever they want. It's bad. 
But guess what? People are always going to do whatever they want. Ayana. But Paul is insistent in spite of the objections that God's salvation is of grace alone. Whatever other instructions, other commands may be given. Christ has put his people in this state of grace by his death. This is so important to Paul that between Romans 1 and 12, Romans 6 is the only place that he has a hint of giving you an exhortation. The 11 chapters are strictly doctrinal treaties on how salvation works. Very, very important. So he has to help us as believers on how we ought to relate to the message. And he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's not how we are supposed to relate to the message. Grace, in other words, cannot be reason or motivation to justify what else you do for sin. Also, you are not under the law, but under grace. And that means the redeemed are not answerable to the demands of the covenant of Mount Sinai, no matter what has been repeated or carried into the new. They are different constitutions, and I need you to hear me clearly on this. The, some people argue and say, well, we have some commands in the new that are also found in the old. Therefore, the old is still binding on the conscience of the redeemed. And I am saying, the old and the new are different constitutions. The constitution of North Korea may share or have some ideas about certain things that are found in the constitution of the United States. But that does not mean they are the same constitutions or are the same country, or are protected the same way. So just because there's a commandment of the old that finds itself in the new, that does not mean that the old is still standing and binding on the conscience of the believers. The new has its own dimensions according to its constitution. Because when Jesus came, he said, a new law I give unto you. Otherwise, he could have easily, he was speaking to Jews, he could have just easily told them to go back to Moses. So it is not lawless as many accuse us of because they can't hear God's arguments. The New Testament is not lawless. It does not encourage anybody to go crazy. It has its own prescriptions, its own code and standards of behavior 
The law of Christ is love, is bearing each other's burdens, forgiving one another. They are mostly drawn from the gospel. That's the basis of the exhortations. And they are given unconditionally. The commands of the New Testament are given unconditionally. You do not do them to gain anything from God. You do them because you have gained everything from God. You have already been given everything. So they do not cause or improve our standing before God. They do not merit things that God has already given by grace. They are given for the sake of the community of believers. We are children. God regards us as children. And as children, we have a tendency to be taking toys from each other and eating someone's food without asking permission, taking someone's drink, you know, the whole deal that kids do. And we are not that far removed from them as far as God is concerned. So we are a community of young children as far as God is concerned. And I would say the community of believers can be described as something close to a homeowner's association in a housing development. They have their rules as to what color paint you can paint your house, what things you can build on your property, mowing grass, and breaking some of the rules cannot get you to lose your house. It will offend some. Maybe they'll have you pay a small fine. Maybe have you upgrade your mailbox like they had us. They were pestering us for three, five years to change our mailbox so that it will be agreeable with the rest of the mailboxes in the development. <laughs> but never did they say, oh, if you can't get a new mailbox, you're going to have to sell your house. Okay doesn't work like that. And if you're making a lot of noise, they'll come and tell you to lower down your volume. They'll send a letter to you. And we had, <laughs> I'm going to have to say this, a neighbor who used to love to mow his grass without a T-shirt on. And he found two free T-shirts in his mailbox. He doesn't know who put them in there. But... <laughs> Grandma knows the story. <laughs> because he was not keeping up with the community standards, just for that community of people to... <laughs> he did get two T-shirts. The HOA are not they who put you into the community of people. It is someone else who don't live in that community who put you in there if you have a mortgage. It's the bank. Okay? So as long as you are keeping things right with the bank, there's no one in the HOA who can put you out. So in the matter of salvation, it is God who put us into the community of people, the church. 
the redeemed, the New Testament. Okay? So we do not do anything to remain in this community of believers. And if your grass is not well maintained, you are still in the community of believers, but it does help to understand the rules of the community. That's pretty much the majority of the imperatives. But a lot of preachers and people come and beat them on you so hard you're thinking that your salvation depends on your doing of them and that's having the whole thing upside down. Okay? Verse 16. I believe that's our last verse, right? I hope so. It's 17. So we are very close. Verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? This is a statement of fact. The one whom you present yourself to obey is your master. You have become a slave to them to do their will, to do their bidding. Now there are two masters that have been presented to us. Every master has a paycheck to give to those that they rule over. When you get employment, you have submitted to the organization, to the company, to the firm that becomes your master. And they pay you for what things you labor for them. You understand that? So Paul says, there are two masters. There's sin and there's obedience with two different outcomes or payouts. Sin as a master leads to death. The wages of sin is death, as we said already. And obedience leads to righteousness or sanctification. But the idea is righteousness. The question is now, what is the obedience to? What form of obedience is it that leads to righteousness or sanctification? It is the obedience of faith in Christ. That is the obedience of righteousness. Those who are slaves to sin remain in unbelief and under sin and its power death and condemnation. Those in obedience are so because of God-given faith in Christ. Because remember when Paul opens his book in Romans chapter 1, he talks of bringing the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. So the obedience of faith is the obedience of righteousness. Because Paul cannot be now teaching a works gospel, having labored to discount it. 
in the previous five chapters. Only the obedience of Christ, as Paul taught in Romans 5, 4, 3, is what brought righteousness, which is justification, and that through imputation, according to the lazy boy gospel, Romans 4, verse 4 and 5, and not by our doing. Paul was a grace preacher. So we have to interpret his words in that manner, always. And let us see if our thinking is correct. And we'll close on that argument, on that point. Verse 17, and that will be our last verse. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. I thought Paul was supposed to be talking about our obedience in actually from here and now to begin to do righteous things so God would count us as sanctified and righteous and yet he's going back to some past activity. If he was talking about our obedience as leading to righteousness, to holiness, to sanctification, and justification, why is he thanking God? You are giving me an instruction on what I'm supposed to do to be righteous. Why is he, with that, going back to thanking God? He thanked God to acknowledge the truth that their and our becoming righteous or holy, us who were once slaves to sin, was by God's doing. Our righteousness, our being moved from being slaves of sin, did not happen by our obedience. God has to be thanked for doing it. And the obedience of faith from the heart was God-caused. And it was to that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And what is that form of doctrine? So this was more than them doing anything. There was a doctrine behind what they believe, which has become their righteousness and sanctification. Why refer to doctrine and ascribing to it power of deliverance? What is that doctrine that removed us from being slaves of sin leading to death? There's only one doctrine that did that. It is none other than the gospel. <laughs> that form of doctrine. Form is the Greek word tupos. And it means an image or print of something. And the NET would define it this way. 
It's an image or a figure formed by a blow or impression, like a stamping. The teaching, it continues, the teaching which embodies the sum and substance of religion and presents it to the mind manner of writing the contents and form of a letter. Paul says you obeyed that form of doctrine. The form of doctrine to which you were delivered then means the print of doctrine is teaching. Some and substance of this doctrine about God's righteousness imputed through and by reason of Christ. Which doctrine embodies the sum and substance of true religion. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's only the gospel that leads to righteousness. Because in this gospel, Christ has become to us the wisdom from God, the righteousness, the sanctification, which is the holiness, and the redemption. It's only in this form of doctrine that we have an obedience that leads to righteousness. This is a very difficult one to teach because if your natural disposition is just to just come and bring more imperatives, you're just going to not even do the work and just say, okay, let's get the imperatives. Stop sinning. <laughs> is that form of doctrine. That's Christ. That print of doctrine. So our obedience to the commands is not what leads us to righteousness with God. It would seem in the way that Paul presented it that if you were slaves of sin and you continue in that that leads to death. And then if you just stop sinning, then that leads you to salvation. Oh, hooray! Salvation is so easy. That's not how it works. You have to work the text in the light of all the arguments. The obedience is obedience unto faith. That is what brings you to the righteousness of God. That brings to life. He's not saying we now lead ourselves in sanctification and holiness and righteousness leading to life. No, it cannot be. It has to be by what Christ already did as has been presented in that form of doctrine. That form of doctrine. Christ Jesus is not the minister of unrighteousness. 
So there's no way that he is going to preach the gospel of grace and then say, kids, do whatever you want. He's not going to do that. Although he knows exactly what he's going to be doing. But he's not going to say that. There's no way he's going to say that. Even to the woman caught in adultery, he said to her, neither do I condemn thee, but go and sin no more. But did that woman not sin again? Of course she did. That very week, the members of the flesh were still at work. <laughs> in one form or another. She did not immediately become a righteous person in herself. It's impossible. She had to have continued in sin. But Jesus is not the minister of, of unrighteousness. He was not trying to tell the people in Israel that, oh, it's okay, since I'm here, even if you do these things, that's still fine. It's still kosher. Don't worry about it. It's under the carpet. Don't worry. No, he's not going to do that. But he knows exactly the frame that we are dust. He made us and we are sinners. And we're going to stumble in many ways between now and death. But know this. You have died to all those things. Okay? So he owns us. And he has every right to command of what we should approve and not approve. He is God. Okay? But we should know this. And I will lend. There's no victory for you through the law. There's no victory for you. The law gives sin dominion, takes you back to condemnation. The redeemed are not under the law. They are under grace. Grace is their home and it is a very safe home for sinners. So remain in the truth of God's grace. That is where victory over sin is found and that is the true obedience. To remain, abide in the truth of the gospel, that form of doctrine. Okay? God be praised. We are done. And let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you for these many words. Trying to understand, having a handle of what you would have us to understand from Romans chapter 6. It's a difficult text, but we thank you for what we've been able to glean from it. And we pray that it will be beneficial and edifying to your people, encourage them in their standing in Christ that it is complete and there's nothing that can be done to it to be taken away or to be improved. We thank you for blessing in Christ. We pray that you keep your people and you gather us around again, around the teaching of God's grace and mercy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, good people, I will not be... Okay, let me revise that. I'll be here next week. And we're going to attempt to finish Romans chapter 6 next week. And then we have to go to First Samuel and pick up at the taking of the ark by the Philistines. I got a title for that message. And I was so happy when I got it. It was yesterday, actually. 
the title of that next message is going to be, not this coming week, but the weekend after. Not that one, both of them will be traveling. <laughs> the title is The Problem with the Ark. The Problem with the Ark. The Problem with the Ark. When I got that title, I had two and a half hours message right away. <laughs> The problem with the ark. Don't play with the ark of God. In other words, don't play with Moses. <laughs> don't play with Moses. All right, so we'll pack it there. <laughs>